This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. I'm guessing it's a function of gaining some needed perspective as I have advanced in years, but I've noticed myself becoming much more conscious of how lucky I've been in life as time has marched on. Of course, I can hear my dear old dad's gentle voice in my ear anytime I would use the word lucky in relation to our lot in life. Billy, he'd say, we're blessed. Lucky or blessed by a god blind to the failings of his servant, I've been relatively untouched by family tragedies. In good health, married to a loving wife with whom we have been blessed with terrific children and adored grandchildren, had a rewarding career, and have been given the opportunity to do things like this podcast. I'm sure many people would look at my life and say, I have led a charmed existence. And I'm here to agree with them. They would be right. Is it that as we get older, we have more time to reflect? Or that as we get older, we feel more of a need to reflect? Or is reflection a recessed attribute in my genetic makeup that has finally bubbled its way to the surface? I'm not sure what it is, but as I have watched family members die, good friends struggle with punishing disease, or even just pass it down on their luck person on the street, I find myself thinking more and more, there but for the grace of God go I. So see, Dad, your reminders have finally gotten through. I find myself similarly reflective at other times as well, particularly when I come across a story of someone who has died well ahead of their time. Whether it be a child taken away by cruel illness or an unwitting victim of senseless violence, I find myself incredibly saddened by the thoughts of those people never again being able to experience the wonderful things that I have, whether it be landmark family events, memorable travels, or even just the serendipitous, unforeseen small moments that nevertheless leave an indelible mark. Those people never again had the luxury of those things that we, the living, sometimes take for granted as our due. I don't remember when or even how I first came across Eric Batia's story, but it fit right into this personal obsession I have had for some time now about how blessed myself and any of us who have had the good fortune to enjoy a long life have been, and how much was taken away from those who have not been able to, and how much pain has been left behind that never, ever goes away. I want to thank Anthony Stabile Sr., Richie Migliori, and Frank Lovato Jr. for spending time with me to share their memories of Eric Batia. I hope this podcast in some small way helps you, and continues to help me, not just realize how blessed we have been, but to make sure to pass those blessings on to others also, every day and every way we can. Eric Batia, you should know, was but 21 years old, a rising star in eastern seaboard racing circles when his life was tragically cut short in a senseless violent act on the New Jersey Turnpike in November of 1983 by a man for whom he was doing a favor. It didn't matter who I spoke to, it was clear that the tragedy of Eric Batia's untimely death is something they still think about. Richie brought home how hard such random violence is to understand. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you know just a tragic story. I mean, he was uh, such a talented young guy with such a big future in front of him, and you know to have his life snuffed out literally like that was you know, beyond comprehension. Yeah, I, I think they are important stories to be told, and and you know uh, in a way it honors him, keeps his memory alive because you know again he would have written his own page in the history of this sport if if you know this. Unbelievable, you know, unfathomable event didn't happen. Anthony T-Bone Stabile, the father of the New York Racing Association racing commentator and a horse racing personality in his own right, remembers when he first met Eric and the impression Eric immediately made on him. How did you first meet him, Anthony? I met him in Aqueduct. He was galloping horses for a guy named Frank Tuffarello. One thing, when I first saw him ride, 
I said, man, this kid's got a lot of ability. Really? Yeah. What uh, What stood out uh, to you? That he could finish. Okay. Okay. He could finish as good as anybody. And you saw that just in his in his galloping, uh, you know, the horses. You 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 were able to pick that out. Watch some breeze horses. You know, we had a friend named Winston Chinfat. He's dead now. Winston, he died. He had a stroke or two. two. Mm-hmm. But Winston was champion him around a racetrack, trying to get him started. Okay. And uh, you know, I gave him a shot. He was a very unassuming, quiet kid when he come around. Nice, polite. Like I said, good on a horse, man. Real good on a horse. You know, so he's a likable kid. A very likable kid. And I suppose that goes a long way, right, on the backstretch if you, your personality is open and accessible? Yeah. Well, I was pretty certain I knew what Anthony meant by the ability to finish, but Richie Migliori did a great job of explaining what finishing means in terms of top-level jockey performance. Well, it's, it's about getting in a rhythm with the horse, becoming almost one with the horse. So you're, when you're hand-riding, you're in perfect, you know, uh, you're, it's perfectly synchronized with the horse's action. So you're keeping the horse balanced and uh, keeping the fluidity of the stride. And he was very strong. I mean, he was extremely strong. Um, you know, where you can, he could really pick a horse's head up, put the bit in his mouth, and help, you know, propel him forward. Um, the other thing that doesn't get talked about with when we talk about strong finishes um, or knowing how to finish on a horse is hitting a horse with the, the stick in rhythm. If you hit a horse when their front feet are on the ground, all they're going to do is pick their feet up faster. When a horse's stride is recoiled and their hind legs are on the ground is when you're supposed to be hitting them because now they're going to propel themselves forward. Horses don't drag themselves. They, they, they push themselves off. Um, and a lot of young riders don't get that right away. They don't understand that there's a, a, a certain uh, moment in their stride when you're supposed to be uh, in the act of hitting them to go forward. Keep in mind that Eric was demonstrating those skills and making others take notice at the tender age of 18. In a jockey colony, people by the likes of Angel Cordero, Eddie Maple, Jorge Velasquez, and Jacinto Vasquez, among others. Let Richie tell you what it was like to step into that legendary jockey's room for the first time. Well, you, you know, you're, you're so excited to be there. and you, You've worked so hard to get to that point where, you know, you, you're actually licensed to ride. Um, you, so you're not really overwhelmed. You're just kind of excited. Um, but the, the toughest part about it is earning those guys' respect, you, you know, because you're, you're a kid. What do you really know? And, you know, you, you've got to conduct yourself a certain way. Um, you know, it's not like other sports where your, your competitors are going back to different locker rooms. You're going back to the same locker room with, you know, these guys that are already established and, you know, are obviously great at what they do. Um, and, you know, that was something that I recognized right away that Eric was, Eric Batia was one of those guys that the, the older guys respected him. Like he had already kind of proven his medal, if you will. Um, and, um, you know, it was something for me to aspire to be like, because I was, you know, I was 16 years old. Eric was probably, you know, two or three years older than me anyway. Um, and I said, well, you know, obviously this guy's got it together because if, you know, Angel Cordero shows him respect. You know, he's doing something right. I need to pay attention to that. As a young jockey, you're virtually under the microscope every day of your progression from apprentice to journeyman, and of course beyond, because as Frank Lovato observed, while certain ability may come naturally, one has to be careful to continue to work at it also. Oh, absolutely. The older riders look at a young guy, and, and 
you know, there's so many kids that say they want to be a rider, but mm-hmm. then they're not really willing to do the work or do what's necessary to become that rider. And, and then to stay, you know, establish themselves and stay, have longevity. Um, and it, it does go back to your work ethic. You know, if you're, if you win two or three races and then you don't show up until eight o'clock the next morning, well, that people notice that jockeys, trainers, owners, you, you know, you have to be very consistent with your approach and it doesn't matter if you won five the day before or you got beat on five favorites, you're going to be there the next day to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and early, um, usually, you know, they're looking for the guys that, you know, get done with morning work and they go running off home. Well, the all the successful riders finish morning work and they go straight to the jockey's room to, to start preparing for the day's races, whether it's watching replays, whether it's handicapping the races, whether it's getting in the steam room, the sauna, um, working out, you know, what, whatever you need to do, like your day starts at five thirty, let's say in the morning mm-hmm. and it doesn't end until the last, the last race. It's not like you take breaks and you go, you know, well, I'll go home and take a nap and have lunches and that. So, you know, it, it, it's a, a confluence of things, your work ethic, your, your dedication, your preparation. Um, and, and there's a respect factor that you have to give if you want to get it back. Well, you know, the weight allowance is, is put in place to give young riders an opportunity. Why, why would a guy ride a very raw, you know, green apprentice jockey um, over Angel Cordero, let's say? You know, there's no, there's no incentive. So, of course, when you start out, you get 10 pounds until your fifth win, seven pounds until your 35th win, and then um, five pounds for a year from the date of your fifth winner. So, um, you know, th- this way it, it, it gives people a reason to give a kid a chance and, and create new riders, develop new riders. So what happens is that you have a number of stables that really believe the weight off is a huge advantage. Like their formula for things, saving ground, weight off. As soon as you lose the bug, those people stop riding you because they, they go back to their belief that so they're going to get the next apprentice in line coming up. So now you've got to build a whole new base of business um, and prove to people that it wasn't just the weight off that made you successful as an apprentice. Um, so it, it, it's a difficult thing. Like I was leading rider for the entire year in 81, and Angel Cordero was second. Now I lose the bug, and I, it took me two years, two and a half years of just busting my butt and working and proving people. And I went from winning, you know, I think it was 260-some-odd races in New York the first year I rode at 16, the next year, I think I rode 80 winners, so, you know, something like that. I'd have to look it up specifically. But, and then 83 was even slower, and then 84, I started coming back where I broke over the 100 mark again, and then 85, I was leading rider again. So it, it's it really you have to dig in. You have to have a mindset that I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to prove to everybody that I belong with this group of riders and it's difficult. What happens to a lot of young guys is they can't take that rejection. They can't take that. Wow. I was like the flavor of the, the month last year. And now barn doors are getting closed in my face. And the way I always approached it was 
it, it's kind of like an actor that's going around auditioning for parts. I need that one good part to prove that, you know, I, I can, you know, so, uh, and of course the good horses are the Academy Award winning parts, if you will, right? Like, as a kid, I, I was under contract to a stable. Steve DeMauro had put me under contract. When I was 15 years old, I was under contract. And he really, I mean, I, it was very strict because he was always worried about getting, falling in with the wrong kind of people or people getting their hooks into you. And there's, you're always going to have that when you have a young, successful athlete in, in any, any sport, right? You're going to have people that are going to be looking to take advantage in one way or another. Um, and I know Eric didn't have a contract with anyone stable and, you know, so I don't know, like, I, I feel like I was protected in that respect. My boss was very strict. I wasn't even allowed to drive a car. Like, he wouldn't allow me to own a car um, while I was still an apprentice, that kind of thing, you know. Um, I mean, when I first started riding, I wasn't even old enough to drive. But, um, you know, when I became of age, no, but when I became of age, he was, no, no, no. I, and I still lived on the track, and the only time he let me move uh, off the racetrack, I had a room in the barn was to get an apartment with his son because he wanted his, his son was six, seven years old and he wanted him to look out for me, you know? So, um, you know, it is something that's real. Frank, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, you had to work at it. Um, Eric had this natural ability. Do you think, um, the combination of, you know, being young and, and having it come naturally versus, in your situation where you had actually grown up around horses, I believe your dad was a jockey also, right? Um, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and you had, you had kind of grown up around it um, and, you know, maybe were exposed more to how much work needed to be done. Do you think that was the difference between where kind of you went in that year and where Eric went? You know, like I said, he was young, <laughs> comes naturally, sometimes, you know, that that's easy, especially for a young person to say, I can... You know, I, I can, it's not a big deal. I can do this anytime I want. Um, you know what, it, it definitely, I mean, it was much more, I had much more foundation because I saw my father's, that was my father's career and, um, and seeing what my father had gone through, um, as far as success and then as far as failure, struggles, um, you know, things, things like with my, with my dad's situation, overcoming a, a bad injury. Mm. And never getting back, never getting back to the level. Um, so knowing how, <clears throat> knowing how you can be on top of the world one day and on in the, and on the bottom very very quickly um, because of circumstances. So it, it's not always effort; it, it, it's it's luck and circumstances. I mean, there, there could be champion jockeys we never would have known like, just because like, a career and any injury happened to them. Um, that like we're memorializing Eric, um, and it was tragic him losing his life. You know, was off the track. Um, then who knows what he could have done? And, and there's so many, so many that, that fall through the, the cracks because of that. Eric had the advantage of carrying an athletic but very light frame. Anthony Stabile and Richie both talked about the advantages that accrue in those circumstances. Part of the attraction, I was supposed for yourself as a trainer, uh, is. Early on, when you see a young jockey who has some ability, um, if he's getting the seven pounds or the five pounds or the ten pounds or whatever, um, you you got to stealing money. Plain and simple, you're stealing. When they get when a bug rider 
If you feel a bug ride is as good as a journeyman, you're stealing every time you ride him. Yeah, Eric was very light. He he could he could tack like 108 pounds, you know, pretty naturally, which is means he weighed about 104 stripped, you know, 108 with, with his equipment. So, um, and that is a big advantage, you know, when you don't have that pressure hanging over you all the time about what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you have to do to lose weight to to make make weight. Like myself right now, I'm 145 pounds and people think I'm still my riding weight. I'm, I'm 30 pounds over my riding weight. And, you know, so it, it was, that was a, a constant, constant battle. Cause I'm not a, a small guy. I mean, I'm five, seven, that's tall for a jock. Yeah. I always said I was the center on the jockey basketball team. But there's only one way you earn the respect of top trainers and owners in this business. Something that is as true now as it was then it's by succeeding. Some of the mounts Eric was able to get and the trainers Eric was able to ride for are more than indicative of the respect that he earned. In 82, the Diana up at Saratoga was run in two divisions because of the number of entries, and he won on both of them. I mean, he won both legs of the Diana in 1982, which is, you know, pretty impressive, right? Because it's a turf race, and turf riding is all right. about, you know, placement and timing and... Uh, so clearly he had a, he had a nose for it, um, to be able to pull off something like that. And again, he was very light. That's why he rode. Okay. 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 That's why he riding them races because he could ride with 108, 109. Yeah. Turf, turf racing is, you, you have to be a lot more cerebral. You have to really think about every move and, um, saving ground is so, important so yeah tactics and strategy and the approach is completely different and it's a great point you make because that kind of differentiates good riders and you know ordinary riders guys that can excel on the turf um are your best riders because it's a, it's more of a thinking man's game if you will um and the fact that eric did that and it's funny because i was trying to remember I remember him winning the Diana. I actually don't remember him winning both divisions that year, but I remember one was Fally at Birch, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And um, that's a huge deal. You see, like I talked about, when you lose the bug, you stop riding for certain stables. Well, like an Elliot Birch isn't usually looking to ride apprentices, but if he starts riding you, it shows the other trainers, wow, he's got confidence to put this guy on a horse. So I remember Eric, you know, winning Fally at Birch, and that it was a big deal because that was going to create other opportunities for him. Frank Lovato Jr. was a rival of Eric, but also perhaps fostered at least in part by the camaraderie of professionals with difficult jobs not fully understood by the public, became one of Eric's best friends. Respect, after all, as Richie said, has to come from your peers also. But those can be complicated relationships. In fact, I think you were you were both apprentices at the same time. Is that correct, or, or pretty close? At the, uh, we, we were we were fierce competitors, <laughs> okay. but became best friends. Became best friends. Um, that that's you know pretty much sums up the yep. <laughs> a, a complicated relationship. Like any other sporting endeavor, the level of competition among jockeys is ferocious, as it should be. We, as the sporting public, are typically spoon-fed the storylines designed to get our blood flowing. As a longtime Boston Celtics fan, I think about the on-floor rivalry between Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell, and how, as Celtics fans. 
we were taught to despise everything about Wilt. Imagine my surprise, and I would say the surprise of anyone in attendance that night, when at a tribute event for Bill Russell, shortly before Wilt's untimely passing, Wilt reflected on their personal friendship, recounting, among other anecdotes, how Wilt's mother used to have Bill over to dinner with Wilt at her house prior to games in Philadelphia. Wait, what? So there's the competition side and then there's the personal side. Let's not forget, behind the competitive shield, there can lie close acquaintances and cherished friends. Richie and Frank both talked about Eric's personal side, the one we likely never would have seen as the racing public. What, what do you remember about him personally, um, Richie? Um, he, it, it was funny because he could be so quiet and, and almost shy, but then he'd pull some prank on you. Like he had a really funny, mischievous sense of humor. And, and, like, when I first went in there, I didn't, you know, I don't know this guy, and he was kind of quiet and reserved. And then when you, you came to know him, um, he, he was a riot. He, was, he had a great personality um, and, and really funny, you know, just a, a terrific sense of humor. <laughs> he's so funny. I, he, he's just adorable. I mean, the, the things his, his, with his broken English, that's another thing about him. He learned how to speak English in a year. And, um, and, and, you know, explaining to me, it's one of the most difficult. He would ask me questions like, why does, why does, like, uh, I'm trying to think of, like, a word that's spelled the same way means two different things, and uh, you say it different I'm, I'm trying to think of a word. But he would come up with things like these questions that I, I just I couldn't answer. <laughs> um, but, uh, to, to this day, and like, it's just a, a, a quick little funny um, story. Like, we were talking about what we're going to name our babies, and, and I could still hear Eric's voice in my head when he, when he said this. I'm like, so did you come up with a name yet? And he says, yeah. He says, uh, if it's a boy, I'm going to name it. And this is this is Eric. He says, if it's a boy, I'm going to name it Erica. And I said, well, what if it's a girl? He says, I'm going to name it Erica. <laughs> So, so I'm like, are you messing with me? If it's a boy, he's going to name it Eric, and if it's a girl, he's going to name it Erica. So I, 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 I thought he was, I thought he was messing with me. So, so, so Frankie, what are you going to name? You would unique going to name your baby if it's a, if it's a boy, Frankie, and if it's a girl, Franca. <laughs> uh, just little things like that, like, like we, that I can, I could just still hear hear his voice and and, and makes makes me think and smile. But no, he was he was funny. The other thing about him that that like with with the tragedy that he faced, um, that he had to endure was he he was a scaredy cat as far as we lived together, we hung out together. He always had to have lights on at night. If he heard a noise, he was he was like, What's that? <laughs> and and I used I used to make I used to make fun of him. But he was I mean, he was ferocious on a horse, but the littlest things would, would scare him, um, which I thought was, was kind of cute. But There's more, actually much more, to Eric's story, which you'll learn about in part two next week. Thanks for joining us.